Don't call it a comb back. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm going to hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Because when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios. We need as much money as we can. This is the Press Box. The age difference on this show. With Grady and Bischoff. I'm glad you're the one that went in on the details of how my No, works. come on, I'm feral. Here we go. The game we've waited for. Gonzaga Baylor tonight. Everyone's waiting for this one. Let's start it off with that. The first bite. Was UCLA Gonzaga the best Final Four game? Oh, man. That we've seen, that you and I've seen. Yeah. I'm not, well, okay, so I've got two two examples of uh, maybe that will uh, – well, maybe not as good at games, but uh, just my own personal experience covering it. I was about three feet literally away from Gordon Hayward when he, when he heaved the shot from half court. I did think – and this is past tense – I think had that made it, it might have been one of the greatest games ever only because those Butler kids said – that they would have walked the trophy back to the streets of Indianapolis because their campus is five miles away. I thought that would have been the greatest scene ever, ever of anything. And then I was also at Chris Jenkins beating Carolina, and that was for the national championship. So that was really, really good. But given UCLA was an 11, and I don't think anyone thought, I mean, that they'd score 60, never mind 90, this probably is in the conversation, right, is one of the greatest Final Four games. Yeah, I, I think the, the Butler-Duke one, the main problem with that one is the game kind of sucked until the end. Like, yeah, it the game was not good. No, Yeah, it wasn't like a well-played game. It was right. close, and it had drama at the end. Um, right. The So, to me, the Villanova-North Carolina game is probably mm-hmm. the best that I've ever watched. Mm-hmm. Um, because, if you remember, not only did Chris Jenkins hit a buzzer beater to win that game, but North Carolina erased like a six-point deficit right. in the final minute, mm-hmm. and North Carolina yeah. hit an, uh, an an adjusted three-pointer, like guy yeah. adjusted in the air with four seconds left to drill a three-pointer to tie yeah. that game that would have sent it to overtime had it not been for Chris Jenkins. So, like to me, that's that would be number one. This is probably number two of all the games I've seen in the Final Four, of the national championship, like. The quality of play in UCLA-Gonzaga might be better than any game I've seen. And then the way it ends was unbelievable. And the only reason Villanova-North Carolina would be better is simply the stakes. It's the championship game, and you you hit a buzzer beater three to win the championship. That's as good as it's ever going to get. So. It's it's number two for me. Like As far as games I've watched in the Final Four, that's, that's the second best one I've ever seen. Yeah. No, I'm there with you. Like I said, uh, Jenkins was amazing because it won it, and he hits it, and the streamers come down, and it was just it was insane to be there. Um, but it, this was amazing, man. And and you know, I mean, there were fans obviously there. It would have been incredible had it been like the regular Final Four atmosphere with like you know seventy thousand people there. But it takes nothing away from an incredible game it was. And like I said, I mean, there were so many times in the second half. Maybe, you know, Gonzaga would go to a three or four point lead like, all right, here we go. The second half line before, you know, before the second half tipped off was 10. Uh, I know a buddy of ours in the media uh, circle who got uh, in game two and a half when it came down to Gonzaga two and a half. So he was very happy when the three went in. (laughs) Um, Not to mention any names at the VGK game, Adam Hill. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, that was – it was uh, – what an amazing finish. And like I said, Gonzaga would go ahead and you're like, okay, this is it. And then a minute later, they're down. And, like, I think everyone was just waiting for the one spurt, the one run that says, okay, UCLA, you had a great run. You were, you were playing 11. You got all the way here. But you're just going to lose by eight or nine, and that's going to be it. And it never happened. And that's, you know, a huge, huge, you know, uh, amount of respect towards UCLA to stay there and to be in that thing and, and to have a chance to win it. By the way, I do need to give credit to Mark Few because – he had a timeout left, and he did not call it before that Jalen Suggs game went. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we got a game-tying shot from Johnny Juzang with four right. seconds left, and then immediately an inbound push-up-the-floor half-court jumper to win the game with no timeouts. That's when basketball is phenomenal. If Mark Few calls a timeout there, ah, now we got to go to commercial break and come back. So Mark Few might be on board with me with banning timeouts in the sport of yeah. college basketball. Now, if we're looking ahead a little bit to Gonzaga playing in the national championship, did you watch that game against UCLA and think Gonzaga is more vulnerable than you thought before? Well, that's an interesting question. I think they're more vulnerable because I think Baylor's better than UCLA. Um, and I think Baylor's guards are a lot better. So we'll see. And that's the other thing. One or two things could happen, right? They could have just shot it all on, on Saturday and just not being able to, the emotions of a final four are incredible. Never mind winning like that. Forget about it. Like your emotions, the next 24 hours, you are wired at that point. It's not like you can come down from that in five minutes and say, well, let's just focus on Baylor. If they had a week to prepare for Baylor, that's one thing, but they had, you know, a day of prep to prepare. So they're either going to come in and it's just so hard to ratchet up the emotion, even though it's a national championship or, they escape their one. What do they always say? If you got to win six, you're going to get lucky once, or you're going to escape one. All the great teams kind of have that. Very few go six and zero and just dominate every game. So tonight, that's what makes it interesting. Not so much Baylor side of things because I think they'll play well. How does Gonzaga come back from that? And they could come back really positively and win the game, or they might not have enough left, and the emotions will get to them and they won't win. So. I don't know. I think that's one of the fascinating things about tonight, though. Not so much Baylor. They won easily. I think they're fine. It's going to be how can Gonzaga bounce back from winning like that? I am more confident that Gonzaga is going to beat Baylor after that game because Gonzaga did not play poorly in that game. That was actually offensively. That was Gonzaga's second most efficient offensive game of the NCAA tournament. And then if you look defensively, what they did, or what or I guess I should say what UCLA did on offense. Right. UCLA in that game took 29 shots from the mid-range. 29 of them. They made 19. That is 66%. To put that in context, in college basketball, the average mid-range jumper goes in 37% of the time. And UCLA, who this season was an above-average mid-range shooting team, makes 41% of their mid-range jumpers. UCLA made 66% in that game. If you break down their shots, UCLA had 13 shots that were layups or dunks, 17 shots from three, and again, 29 mid-range shots. They just happened to make 66% of them. They made about seven more mid-range shots than you would expect them to make, which is 14 points. And if they don't make those, they lose that game by 14 points in regulation. And we're not sitting here thinking that it was a great game, but they made 66% of their mid-range shots. And so looking at Gonzaga, if I'm Gonzaga defensively and the team I'm playing gets 13 layups, 17 threes, and 29 mid-range shots, 
I'm pumped about how my defense played because those are the shots I want to give away. If I'm defensively scheming up, hey, what shots do we want to allow? It's the mid-range shots. And they took 29 of them in that game. So the, the only problem Gonzaga had was that UCLA kept making them. That UCLA didn't stop making mid-range jumpers and no one's going to make 66% of their mid-range shots. Like that just doesn't happen in a game. Here's the thing. If you make 66% of your mid-range shots, no one on earth would be calling them inefficient because now they're one of the most efficient shots you can take in sports if you're going to make 66% of them. But teams don't make 66% of those shots. So I, I'm i not at all worried about Gonzaga after that game. Like I thought they played spectacularly well. I The only problem was UCLA kept making the most inefficient shot in basketball and managed to keep up with Gonzaga because of it. So I didn't watch that and think Gonzaga was vulnerable. If anything, I watched that and thought Gonzaga, yeah, this is exactly the Gonzaga team we've seen play the entire season and the entire NCAA tournament. Well, they're the best team. I mean, and and if it's best of seven, then I think you'd fan their favorite tonight. I If I'm them and best of seven, I wouldn't pick anyone else. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see tonight. You know, UNLV of 91, they're just games where, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, you know, in, in huge moments. Um, we've seen it happen before. We'll see. I mean, I'm interested tonight, and I know we'll get to this later in the show about how they can beat them. Uh, those guards are really good on Baylor, and, you know, Suggs is obviously really, really good. Baylor's got more depth than Gonzaga. I think few played two people off his bench. Again, you, you, they could come in and win by 10, and I won't even blink. I mean, I, I won't even, I mean, they're the best team. I, I'm interested to see how they play, though, after that. Um, and you're right, Baylor's not going to shoot like that from, from uh, on mid range jumpers. They're not even that kind of team anyway because um, those guards are so good from three and they're so good off the bounce and they get to the rim. So I'm just looking forward to it, man. I, I hope it's – look, if we get a game like the other night with UCLA, I think everyone will be happy. You know, I just – I don't know if anyone wants 15 to 20 points tonight, you know, in, in a blowout. I mean, I know Gonzaga would because they'd probably be the side that could do it. I don't think Baylor as – well, as well as played. Houston got caught up. Houston just – the thing about Houston with Baylor the other night, I mean – and this is silly saying it in one way because UNLV was an eleven. But that was a huge step up that Houston took. The seeds they had played before that were not anywhere near what they saw last night. Or, excuse me, on Saturday. Baylor was far better than who they had played. So, And they got cut up. I think they got caught up in the moment, and Baylor just kind of took them out. So, yeah, I hope it's a really good game, man. I, I don't think we're going to get a finish like that. I mean, those finishes don't come around very often. But I'd love it to be at least a one-possession game in the end for someone to have to make a play. All right, last thing from the Gonzaga-UCLA game. End of regulation. They call a charge on UCLA when Drew Timmy steps in to take it in the final seconds. Did you think the refs bailed out Gonzaga with that call? Okay, so I hate the call on block charge because I think they get it wrong a lot. And that's a cliche because they have gotten to wrong, wrong a lot. I don't know if I like the rule, but I think it was a charge. So bailing them out, I'm not so sure. I think by the rule, I thought it was a charge, but I hate the rule. And, you know, I mean, you know as well as anyone, they, they, they missed the call a lot. Um, so again, can you bail them out if it's the right call? I don't know, but it was a huge call in the game, obviously. And, uh, you know, he took the charge and and they made the call. So I, but I think that rule is so messed up in so many ways that they miss it so often that, you know, I'm never surprised. I should leave it at this. Like, I'm just never surprised which way it goes. Like I'm, you know, I, I've given up. It's safe. It's safe out. It's block charge. There's just calls in sports where you kind of shrug your shoulders now and you're like, all right, well, they're just going to flip a coin and call the play. So I can add this to my ban timeouts. We need to ban the charge in college basketball. They're, like You should not be rewarded defensively for simply getting run over. 
You should not be allowed to just stand in the way and let somebody run into you and that be a good play in the sport of basketball. We should ban the charge. Like, you have to make a play on the ball or something for you to be rewarded defensively, and taking a charge is not that. Taking a charge is simply saying, you're going to run me over and the refs are going to give me the ball because for some reason that's a rule. Now, you can still have offensive fouls if a guy like lowers his shoulder into a defender or something like that, that's fine. But just simply standing still and getting run over, you should never be rewarded for that in the sport of basketball. So I've, I've already told you guys multiple times, I want to ban timeouts in the sport of college basketball, get these coaches out of here, too much control. We can now just ban charges. You, should not, you cannot stand still and get run over. That's a defensive foul from now on. You're, you're three bands away from guys just sitting on the bench after introduction and then leaving the court and having not a game. Having no, 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 no. How no, many no. bands are you away? At the very least, we're going to have a three-point shootout. Come on now. At the very <laughs> least, we're going to do that something. That would be the only thing in yeah. a game. Listen, I'm not I'm – not ba- listen, ban timeouts because it ruins the game. Ban charges because it ruins the game. I hate mid-range jumpers, but I'm not telling you to ban them. We can keep the mid-range oh, jumpers. Oh, you're close. Yeah, well, if I was a coach, if I was a coach – my team would ban them. But if I'm running the game, no, if you want to be an idiot and take the most inefficient shot, go for it. I'm just going to call you an idiot when you do it because UCLA played their best game ever. But why'd they lose? Because they didn't take two steps back and shoot some more threes. If they had done that, they win that game. All right, coming up next, the Golden Knights. How worried are you that they've lost three in a row? Him from the near side, fires it opposite corner, walk. Oh, it's a backhander score! Tomas Nosek follows it up. Nick Waugh looked like he would play it off the right corner boards, but at the last moment he lifted his stick so it would come cleanly through to the middle, and Nosek puts it into the goal. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Be part of the conversation on the Finley Kia text line at 69187. Finley Kia, come see a Kia on West Sahara. So for the first time, the Golden Knights have lost three regular season games in a row under Pete DeBoer. They lost one to the Kings and then back-to-back games to the Minnesota Wild. So, team is a Stanley Cup contender. They had been leading the West Division for quite a while. They now find themselves four points behind the Colorado Avalanche. Um, what's, What's the concern level? What should be the concern level for the Golden Knights after losing three in a row? I'm more concerned that Waugh said that he knew what he was doing on that play and that it was not uh, it was not uh, just lucky. So I'll leave it at that on that one. Um, Wait, but, didn't he say it was luck? Did he say it was? I hope he said it was luck because there's no way he said he knew he was doing it. I think I, I, I hope he. I think the if opposite, he did, if he did, okay, he should have. Okay, he should have. Yeah. should have said. I, I think he he said in the intermission. I don't know what he said post game, but he said it in the intermission that he thought he was offside and he just didn't want to touch it because then it would have been blown dead. But yeah. I think he should have taken credit for it. I think he should have been, yeah, absolutely. Well, I meant to play that with my skate okay. to Tomas Nosek for a goal. All right, you take yes. Listen, Ed, this is the dumbest sport that anybody covers. The weirdest things happen that leads to goals. Always take credit for it. Yeah. Always. That's fine. I mean, no one would have believed him, but he could have done that. Um, <laughs> so, no look, I mean... Even in fifty, was it fifty six games? You're gonna have some. You're gonna have some slumps. I mean, I, I don't know if they're overly worried. Here's the thing: I think the other thing that's happening here, and we said it from the very beginning of the season. I think if we would have picked the best team in the 
quote unquote Honda division, we would have said Colorado. So it's almost like, I think it's more Colorado as being who we thought they were to take the lead in the division and be the best team. Now, when you go back to the Knights, um, missing some people the last few games, I get it. Minnesota's a terrible matchup. Flurry's now 6-13 and 13 all time. So even when he was with Pittsburgh, he, he didn't play well against these guys. I don't know why. It's one of those things about sports. I asked some people the game, uh, people I really trust, you know, Ben and others, what do you think? And they gave me reasons on terms of the matchup and why it's so bad. So I don't know if I'd be overly concerned about the three straight or I'd be only overly concerned that they got to play these guys perhaps in the first round. Like I'd be more worried if I was like best of seven against Minnesota right now than I would be that they've lost three straight games in a season where they're missing people. And, you know, these things tend to happen. It happened to Colorado earlier in the year. They didn't play as well as they are now. So, I, you know, I still think they're really good. Um, I do think, though, as I wrote after the game the other day, if anyone questions now that Pete DeBoer will have a decision to make a goalie, then they're not watching. Even though I thought Flurry played well the other night, I think he's going to have a decision to make, whereas, you know, as well as anyone, two to three weeks ago, we would have never said that. I think 20 games from now, there's going to be a serious decision to make on who to start in the playoffs. Yeah, you're going to get both guys start roughly 10 games the rest of the year. And I, I honestly think it's whoever's better the rest of the season is probably going to yeah. get it. Like those last four or five starts each is probably right. going to determine who gets it. Now, Flurry, you can probably say, has an edge. And if it's basically the same to finish out the season, then Flurry probably gets it. But uh, I, I think there's going to be a legitimate goalie competition yes. to end this season and if flurry struggles to end leonard's got a great chance to actually go in there and take that starting oh, job yeah. back which, absolutely yeah like you said would be shocking looking back you know just two oh, three yeah. weeks ago um on the actual team it, the regular we've said it the regular season doesn't matter a whole lot um this team's gonna make the playoffs they're still i think 11 points ahead of fourth place let alone fifth place so they're not even gonna fall in fourth place even if they keep playing poorly you lose by you, the the loss to the Kings was by two goals. They had a shootout loss to Minnesota, a one goal loss to Minnesota. So it's not like they're getting beat down. Um, if you look at like their analytics, they're not good, but they're certainly again not getting embarrassed in these games. So I'm not overly concerned with how they're playing in the regular season. It's more about how it relates to the standings because right now they're four points back of Colorado for first, and they're only two points ahead of Minnesota for third. So the way it's looking, Colorado's going to get the one seed and the Golden Knights are going to be in that 2-3 matchup and there's a chance they end up falling to third and having to play on the road in that series against Minnesota as opposed to having home ice advantage over the course of seven games if they fall to the three seed. And that to me is sort of the bigger problem here is looking at the standings because now if they were to fall to three seed, if they continue to lose like they have been... If they fall to the three seed, now you're going to have to beat Minnesota without home ice advantage and then Colorado without home ice advantage yeah. just to get to the final four of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I don't know that this team can do that. I don't know that they're winning both of those series. I don't know. I think the Minnesota ones, I mean, you know, Colorado's obviously the best team right now, so that's going to be difficult no matter what. And I agree with you. They're going to have to go there first. But, you know, how much does home ice mean – against a Minnesota team you have issues with. I'm not so sure. Like you said, all the games are close. It should probably have been 2-0 the other day because a no-shit goal is you know, somewhat fortunate there. So, yeah, I mean, they're 
Third would be difficult, I think, only because of the matchup. Um, might not mean anything. I don't know. You might know this. How many fans right now haven't paid attention? How many fans are Minnesota getting in there? I, I don't know the. I don't know the answer to that uh, in terms of how many fans they're allowed. Um, but you still have to go on the road to a team you struggle against. Uh, and I know, obviously, the Knights have 35, 3,600 at this point. I think Foley's hoping for more by the time the playoffs roll around, a lot more, um, which helps them. You can't deny what T-Mobile and the fan base does for that team. Now, it didn't the two games against Minnesota. I get that. Playoffs are different, like you said. So uh, I think Minnesota would be tough anyway. I think, I think they're, look, they're a better team than Minnesota, and over seven, their best team you know, probably wins out. But if you have to start Minnesota, it puts another layer of difficulty to it, and that's a really hard series. And like you said, let's say that goes seven, and you know, it's, I guess it's Colorado, Arizona, and Colorado can take care of them. You know, in five or whatever. You know, we're guessing a lot ahead here, but then Colorado's kind of waiting around at home. I mean, that makes it even more difficult. Yeah, it's not set up well. And to answer your question, Minnesota is allowing fans back in tonight. Okay. Three. Oh, okay. They're at for Colorado <laughs> tonight. Um, so Minnesota then. And, you know, we're looking at about a month away from when the actual playoffs start. How much more yeah. will it be than 3,000 by then? I, I have no idea. Maybe, no, it, maybe it's significantly more. Maybe it's yeah. not. It's 3,000 for the first round, and it won't be as right. big of a deal. It's just you look at this team and the setup for the playoffs, it's not as nice as it looked about two weeks ago when they were winning this division and you were going to let Colorado play Minnesota in the first round and you only were going to have to go through one of them to get to the final four. Now it's looking like you're going to have to go through two. And if they don't start winning, you might have to do both without home ice advantage. All right. Last thing I want to do here, because we have sound that we get to add to our front page because Ben gets gots or goats from the review. The journal. Homecoming King, the homecoming King, homecoming King. Uh, he asked Keegan Colasar after the first Minnesota game about Keegan Colasar being unable to score on Cam Talbot when he had those two great chances and Talbot had one glove save and one stick save. Here was that fun interaction. Keegan, I just have to ask you, what was your reaction uh, on Thursday with the back-to-back saves Talbot made on you, first with his glove and then the second one with the paddle of his stick? What do you think? Oh, Keegan Colasar. Is that like the first one word or one sentence answer we've gotten during the season from the Golden Knights? What do you think? Answer the question. Come on. <laughs> answer the what question. Do you think? No, yeah, that was you know, that was better. You know, that was better than any actual yeah, answer right, he could have right. given. Okay. Better than answer any the question, answer. Colasar. Mark. No, that's that's better than any. Listen, I'm gonna defend, was, I'm gonna defend my guy. The question's no. fine. Answer the, the question. Yeah, the question's fine, and Ben got the best possible answer. Yeah. That is way better. I mean, than, I just that, that that's fine. That's fine if you want to go that way. That's fine. It's just you know, it's it's also funny. It's Keegan Colasar who's struggled <laughs> finishing, shall we say? And it wasn't maybe a top line guy. Uh, that's fine. Is what it is. I mean, you know, you don't want to answer the question. Guys want to answer questions. It's definitely. I'll answer your question back. They, you look, you and I have talked about this. There are some guys on that team who don't want to do media. And I don't know if they're anti me. They just don't want to do it. And you can tell by body language. You can tell by answering. I mean, I could say who it is right now. It's not important. But there are guys on that team who are fine with it and, you know, give a lot of answers. There's guys on that team who are fine with it and give horrible answers. And you're like, this guy doesn't say anything. But at least he shows up and he tries. And then there's guys... Uh, who maybe will give that answer the other night. You don't You don't get a lot of those kind of answers from them, though. You either get, I don't really want to be here, but I'm going to answer your question and try. Um, I don't say anything, but I'll answer. 
if I had to pick in my job guys who I say, boy, put that guy up there because they're great at this, that would be a short list. And I don't know if that's a hockey thing. I don't know. You can say what you think. I don't think a lot of them are great where you're like, oh, good, you got that guy today to come on the Zoom. I'll tell you what Keegan Colasar is not great at, and it's scoring. Yes, um, but finishing. I will give you this stat. On the season, Keegan Colasar has one less goal than $8.8 million Alex Petrangelo. Oh. Poor Alex Petrangelo. He may never score again for the Golden Knights. All right, coming up next, Sam Gordon joins the show to get into UNLV basketball and what their roster is going to look like next season. Donald with it, dribbles right, dribbles left, dribbles right again, double teamed out front, a heave at the buzzer, no good, and Stanford wins. The Stanford Cardinal have won the national championship. The Stanford drought is over. For the first time in 29 years, the Stanford Cardinal are women's basketball national champions. Stanford 54, Arizona 53, the 2021 Women's Basketball National Championship belongs to the Cardinal. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Greeny and Tyler Bischoff. Joining us now is Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. Follow him on Twitter at BySamGordon. Sam, how are you this morning? Good, Sammy. Good morning, fellas. How you guys doing? We are good. Um, I do. I do need to ask you because you talked to him. So tell us everything you know about Jordan McCabe, UNLV's newest point guard. <laughs> um. Yeah. He. Well. He. Um. I. I know he has a, a podcast that he does with overtime. He's got quite a big brand. Um. And following via social media, so he's going to bring a little bit of excitement to the program in that way. But um. You know he. He when I talked to him, he was very open and you know talked about how West Virginia um, wasn't the great you know the greatest situation for him, and I felt like he was very mature with how he handled that. Um, one of the things I do know is that he was lauded for his leadership uh, during his three years with the Mountaineers, even though even though his his production on the court um, didn't necessarily kind of live up to what a lot of people expected. I mean, he was a four star recruit, after all, a top hundred caliber kid who had a pretty big following. You know, going into college because of that 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 branding that he had. You know, he has a very very tight handle, um, unique kind of you know feel for the game and and vision on the on the floor. I uh, just feel like in the Big Twelve, a little bit undersized and and not the most athletic. So I think you know it's understandable why he struggled in, in arguably what's the best league um, in college basketball. I mean, obviously you know Baylor's in the national championship, and you see how those guards defend and how good they are. That's the kind of competition he was going up against um, night in and night out. So. Um, he he told me he feels like he's at his best, you know, spread pick and roll, up tempo kind of offense, and and he told me that um, his vision and, and Kevin Kruger's vision offensively kind of aligned, and that's part of the reason that he decided to come to UNLV. He also had mentioned that that Kevin Kruger had told him that he was the first recruit, first uh, player in the transfer portal that he had called. So obviously, um, as you guys know, it wasn't a secret. Uh, UNLV didn't have. Great point guard play last year, wanted to address that, wanted to add another primary ball handler, wanted to add somebody that can make plays uh, on the ball and get into the lane and penetrate and do some things and get, get shots for other guys. And you know, Even though Jordan McCabe struggled to do that in the Big 12, I think coming to the Mountain West, you know, he has experience, he's seasoned, he's played against some of the best of the best in college basketball, he's played against guys that are going to be in the NBA, first-round picks, that kind of caliber talent. 
So I think coming to UNLV for him, um, even though the statistics weren't glamorous in the Big 12, I think it's going to be a good fit. Uh, gives the, the, the Rebels leadership. Uh, gives them a, a veteran guard who's seen some of the best players in the country. And, um, and a, a big addition, uh, believe it or not, in my opinion, based on, uh, on the kind of game he has, his skill set, and, and based on what Kevin Kruger wants to do. Um, I want to stay with that theme of what he wants to do and what you've kind of seen lately, and they're obviously not near done. Uh, we're going to talk a little while on the show about Royce Ham, the Texas kid. Uh, they bring in Carlin Hartman from Oklahoma as an assistant coach. So do you think it's a pattern where maybe he's going to go after kids from Power Fives that didn't work out or they didn't play much? You can go one way or the other in the transfer portal, as you know. You can go get lower division kids who you know led the country in scoring, or you know, but there were these faraway places nobody knew about. Or you can go get these P5 kids who never played and they're trying to you know make a better fit. I don't know if he has a, you know, a, this is his strategy, but what do you take from the West Virginia kid and Ham and how he kind of at least looks like he's going to try to recruit early? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, like you guys, like you touched on, he's getting guys from Power 5 programs, at least the first two players are from Power 5 programs that didn't necessarily flourish in whatever roles they had. And, uh, you know, both both Jordan McCabe and uh, Ann Royce Ham had pedigree as, as top 100 guys that come into college uh, and come into, you know, Big 12 programs, and for, for one reason or another, it just doesn't work out. And I think you see this sometimes, um, you know, where, where guys in, in bigger conferences, it's just not a right fit, not a right situation, but they, they transfer down to, to lower-level leagues and have some success. And um, with all due respect to the Mountain West, that's obviously not the Big 12. So you, you have these guys that have clearly have Power 5, you know, talent or, or a Power 5 skill or else they would have been getting recruited to these programs in the first place, and you bring them down to a slightly lower-level competition in the Mountain West and maybe change their role or, or, or simplify things a little bit, and, and they become more of impact players. I think it's the right way to go, at least um, in year one, as wow, wow, Kevin Kruger and his staff and Carlin Hartman and those guys work to establish relationships with the high school players that they want to get in here for three, four, five years and, and really build the program that way. So, um, to me, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think they're done uh, in that regard, and in, in that um, in that kind of market in the transfer portal, I think there's going to be some other uh, Power Five caliber players that that they're going to pursue um, if they haven't been pursuing already. And of course, you've seen the reports that they've pursued guys, you know, that have that have had big time uh, big time careers in in other another mid major leagues too. It just to me, those players seem like there's going to be a little bit more competition for them uh, amongst the Power Five schools, amongst the kind of the the bigger name program. So uh, it makes sense that guys that didn't get a lot of experience or didn't get a lot of playing time in power five leagues want to come to the Mount West because there's going to be an opportunity for minutes an opportunity for playing time right away that they didn't necessarily have. And, uh, and in my opinion, those two McCabe and ham, um, those are good fits. I mean, I don't think either one of those guys is necessarily changing the life, but they're experienced in big time conferences and, and are going to be able to come in and, and I think adjust the Mountain West play and, and be contributors here at UNLV in a way that they weren't in, at their previous stops. Should UNLV fans be combing through the Oklahoma roster to try to see what players they want to steal? Yeah, yeah, I, I think for <laughs> sure. Um, I think they uh, they absolutely they should be, and I, I'd be surprised if they aren't. Uh, I know um, you know a couple of transfers in the portal from Oklahoma. Uh, I mean, Brady Manick is an is, is an experienced player that I wouldn't be surprised, you know, and a productive one too. I wouldn't be surprised if if they gave him a gander. Now, given that he succeeded in the Big Twelve and was a starter for four years, I don't necessarily expect him to go uh, take a step backward and play in the Mount West. But I, I don't think it would hurt 
to, to take a look at him. And then you have you have a couple other guys. You know, you have a, a wing, a six eight, six nine wing, Anyang Manang, I believe his name is, who uh, the Oklahoma staff actually recruited from Australia. So I think he's a name that would be worth considering because that, that staff obviously. You bring this kid in from Australia, that, that's a big-time commitment to him, and he's making a big-time commitment to the staff. He's one of those guys that, that didn't play a, a ton um, in the Big 12, didn't play a ton for Oklahoma, but still has, uh, I think, three years of eligibility left, maybe four with, this, with, the, with the, the free year with the, the coronavirus pandemic. But he's the kind of kid where it, may, it would make sense to bring him in um, from, from an Oklahoma where he didn't play a ton, where, where there is some familiarity with, uh, with Carlin Hartman, with Lon Kruger, who, who is obviously retired. Uh, recently, and is going to be in Las Vegas um, and, and you know, serving in some kind of uh, whatever he's going to be doing. I, I mean, he's going to be talking to Kevin Kruger. So, yeah, I think any player that that, ent- that enters the transfer portal, and again, there's been a couple from Oklahoma, are definitely going to be worth considering, especially the ones that didn't play a ton uh, in the Big 12. I think there would definitely be an opportunity for minutes out here and obviously already a familiarity with, with, with Carlin Hartman being on the staff and then Lon Kruger having brought you know guys in as well. What do you think of the staff so far? If I'm not mistaken, if Buckley's staying, he's got one guy left to uh, to hire. Um, Hartman obviously uh, recruited really well at Oklahoma. Uh, I think he's already probably doing that with guys in the portal. Uh, how do you think Kevin's uh, kind of forming this staff to have, whether it's uh, big-time recruiters, uh, more experienced guys around him? Like who, if you're, if you're hiring the third guy now, what kind of coach are you looking for with the third guy? Yeah, with the third guy, I'm probably looking for for more of an X's and O's kind of guy. I, I think. I mean, like you mentioned, Carlin Harmon is is a is a is a big time recruiter, has established relationships, and was able to get big time players uh, to the Big Twelve or had a role in getting big time players to Oklahoma. So I think you already have that covered. Um, Tim Buckley, having been on the staff already. Um, is familiar with Kevin Kruger and, and knows what he wants to do and, and is going to be kind of an extension of him. And I like that that he's a vet, right? He's been in the game a long time, and it's good for, for Kevin Kruger, in my opinion, as a first-year head coach, to still have some experience on the bench. And, and he has that with Carlin Hartman as, as well. Um, don't get me wrong, Carlin Hartman, a very, very, very seasoned, experienced assistant that's been doing this for a really long time. So um, with that in mind, I don't, I don't think it would hurt to have an X's and O's guy, um, kind of a veteran X's and O's guy, whoever that may be, um, just, just as a little bit more experience on the bench. But it's also important that whoever he brings in is also a dynamic recruiter. I mean, let's, let's make no mistake about this. It, it's about the players. As, as, as much as it's about the X's and O's, it's about the Jimmy's and the Joe's even more. Um, so it's crucial that whoever comes in, whether their expertise is, is, is uh, strategy or, or they, they still have some kind, of, uh, some kind of base as a recruiter because that's what's going to get this program turned around is getting big-time players in here getting talented players and, and, and having it's an opportunity to ultimately develop them and turn them into great players at UNLV and at the Mountain West level. So I think he's off to a good start. I think Carlin Hartman was a tremendous hire. Anytime you can get a, a guy who was you know an associate head in the Big 12 um, to come out to the Mountain West, somebody with his kind of experience and his kind of pedigree, I think that's huge. I, I think that's a huge first step. And, and um, you know, with the one hire left to make, I think it's crucial he rounds out the staff with, with just kind of a different voice, something he doesn't already have. And, um, he, he's off to a good start. I think, I think Kevin Kruger you know, knows what he's doing, and, um, and I think he's going to make a, a quality hire here with whoever he brings in. Uh, if you put a percentage on it, what would it be for Bryce Hamilton playing for UNLV next year? Ooh. I, would say, I would say 40% chance he plays for UNLV. Um, I, I, 
just I don't. He's not. I'd be stunned if he if he gets drafted. And, and don't don't get me wrong. I don't think he's I don't think he's getting drafted. And I think there's a reasonable enough expectation um, where where he knows that's not going to happen. Uh, and and it's good. It doesn't hurt to go through the process, right? I mean the the, the NBA. You know they've worked it out where where they give kids an opportunity to test the waters without it crushing their eligibility uh, or the NCAA, whatever, whoever decided on those rules, whether it was a collective thing or not, I think it's really good, right? Because you give the opportunity for, to give players a chance to assess themselves and get feedback and understand what they need to do uh, to, to get their game to the next level and they get an opportunity to return. And I think that door is certainly op- uh, open for him to return to, to UNLV, but I think he's a kid where he goes through the, the process uh, the draft process gets his feedback, and then if he were to come back or, or, or not go to the NBA or not get drafted and then enter the transfer portal, he, he would have a number, you know, interest from Power Five programs. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain of that, and I think that would be enticing for Bryce Hamilton, given that he's already proven himself at the Mount West level, and he uh, would have an opportunity to, to go elsewhere and contribute, maybe to, 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 to winning or to step into a Power Five situation and, and be a, a key contributor. Now. That said, the door is definitely ajar for him to return to UNLV. Uh, I think UNLV would, would welcome him back with open arms. Uh, he is a, an established scorer, somebody at this level that, that you know can give you 18 to 20 points a game. And, and depending on what kind of feedback he hears, um, would, would, there, there's room for improvement. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, he, he could use work on his perimeter shot. Uh, I think his feel for the game, his playmaking has, has evolved, certainly, uh, since his sophomore year. But I think there's another step to go there. And really, uh, without him, I mean, at this point, if, if he were to leave in some capacity, UNLV would be devoid of any kind of proven, proven scoring option. So, uh, I mean, it's, 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 I, I would say it's very unlikely he's going to go to the NBA, uh, more likely that he returns to UNLV, but I wouldn't rule out him, him transferring to another program, um, transferring up and, and playing for a different uh, program in the Power Five. Well, he is Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. Again, follow him on Twitter at BySamGordon. Sam, we appreciate it this morning. Thanks, Sammy. Take care of yourself. Anytime, fellas. Thank you. Take care. Take care. So, yeah, that's, 40, uh, 40 you, you set it up. Well, you said it also because if he doesn't make the league or doesn't go, do not also, like I said, be surprised if teams in the California area come at him to bring him home. So, we'll see what happens. All right. Coming up next, Shohei Otani is our Babe Ruth. First pitch to Fernando is swung on and hit in the air out to deep left center field. Forget it. Way, way, way back. Gonna go. Oh, it's gone. Out over the bullpens in left center field. May end up being one of the longest home runs of his career. Pitch to Piscotty. And Piscotty lifts this one to right fairly deep, but going back on it, Tucker, he makes the catch just before getting to the wall. And that is the ball game. The 3 1 to Walsh. Swinging a fly ball. Out into deep left center. Robert leaps. It's gone. It's a home run. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff, live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. Good work by Jared. No Dodger highlights in the rejoin there. We would not want any of those. We're going to ignore. Why would we have those? Yeah, we're going to ignore any of the games they played besides opening day when they lost. Uh... I don't, I don't know. The Dodgers only played one game, right, Ed? They're 0-1. Uh, you, you guys can do whatever you want. See at the end of the season. <laughs> do I care? <laughs> do I care right now? Listen, you're not upset. I mean, they, 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 they're 3-1, and one and they stranded more runners than UCLA at mid-range. So I'm fine. I'm fine. Stranded like 40 They're getting on base. Uh, Trevor Bauer had a no-hitter through six and then didn't even get out of the yeah. seventh? 
Yeah. Yeah. No hitter through six in Colorado. It's a good good outing for the kid. Strong first outing. Yesterday we yesterday we just gave the whole team off and and still won the game. So yeah, no highlights. Don't worry about it. All right. Now what we do need to talk about here is Shohei Otani because Otani became the first player since 1903 to be the starting pitcher and hit second in the batting lineup. Uh, he had a home run in the first inning. Uh, so Shohei Otani, the great stat from StatCast yesterday, was that Otani has the fastest pitch thrown by a starting pitcher this season and the hardest hit home run by any player in baseball this season. And they happened in the same game in the same inning. Yeah, this is, um, isn't this the guy that when they got him, everyone said what would happen? Um and I know there's been some injuries, but he, I mean, that, that guy in, on those two instances last night, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what they talked about when they brought him in, that he was going to do kind of like these crazy, amazing things. And um, he had a great spring. Uh, so he's interesting. He's one of those guys, and you probably have a lot of them too, where I don't care anything about the team, whether they win or lose, I have no feelings towards the team, but you kind of want to see him play just because he does stuff like that. And there's guys like that throughout sports where you have no affiliation or a fandom for the team, but they just, you want to see him play. So He's one of them. Uh, I hope he keeps doing stuff like that. I love watching stuff like that. Well, you know, he got taken out at home trying to cover home after yeah. a clean play, the, though. The the greatest or the greatest sequence of events to explain the Los Angeles Angels the last like decade. Shohei Otani with two outs gets a strikeout to get out of an inning, but the ball gets away from the catcher. Yeah. The catcher then airmails the throw to first base. So. Two runs end up scoring on a strikeout by Shohei Otani. Yeah. And not only that, the second run takes Shohei Otani out at the plate. Well, I'm okay. going to blame the catcher two times in that. One, I think he should have, one, I don't think he should have been uh, lost the ball on the oh. strike anyway. Then, I don't think he has any chance on, on getting the runner, especially with someone that could potentially come home. He airmails that. So if I'm Otani in the dugout, I'm looking at that guy saying, hey, what the hell, man? You made two mistakes in that play, and I'm the one who got taken out at the plate. That that was the part that was hilarious was, why are you jumping? Like, just look up. <laughs> just look up and like then look back at the guy throwing it to yeah. you and go, what the hell was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a clean play, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, he, I don't know if he was going to get taken out anyway in terms of the game at that point, uh, but – Hope it's not anything serious because, again, that, I thought the home run was awesome. I mean, like, it was high fastball that he took out. Um, I like watching him play. I like he's one of those guys where, like I said, I don't care if the Angels win or lose every game. I just rather watch him. What's fascinating is that the Angels, in order to allow him to pitch and hit on the same day, they have to give up the DH. So right, the Angels, right. an American League team, forfeited the DH yesterday. And yeah. I, I, what I'm fascinated is, is he a good enough hitter that it's worth giving up the D8. Like, is three at-bats from Shohei Otani, and then you've got a pinch hit later the rest of the time the pitcher comes up, is that worth forfeiting the DH? And I think for the Angels, it probably is, because he's one of their two or three best hitters, and the Angels don't really have a great lineup slash lineup depth, guys coming off the bench to hit. So it probably is worth it for the Angels to forfeit the DH to let Shohei Otani hit. Is he hitting when he doesn't pitch? Yeah, he's like their best hitter. That's all you need. That's all you need. Then that's all you need to know.